From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. While Democrats claim the Inflation Reduction Act as a win, activists are left to assess all that was cut from it that would have addressed human rights, human needs, and a livable planet. I speak to On the Ground's environmental justice contributor, Michelle Roberts. There must be a way in which to advance the struggle of the social condition and the health and well-being of their communities, especially in the face of these pandemics. And what's in or not in this act for Black farmers? John Boyd of the National Black Farmers Association gives his take. We're very concerned about turning over everything to USDA, the same people that uh, discriminated against Black farmers in the first place, will be the same uh, agency that's going to set up this process And we should have faith in them and believe that this secretary in USDA is going to do the right thing. When, like I said, he had a billion dollars there and he didn't pay one discrimination claim and there's nothing preventing him from doing so. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital for August 12th, 2022. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, as we go to broadcast, the House is set to vote on the $370 billion climate tax and health care package called the Inflation Reduction Act. As we detailed last week, this act is a mere shadow, a wisp of the initial multi-trillion dollar Build Back Better legislation that included universal pre-K, support for child care and senior care, the family tax credit, student loan debt relief, free community college, better access to health care, addressing the climate catastrophe and a pathway to citizenship for undocumented workers. It was a human infrastructure bill. Economist Richard Wolf, who we've interviewed on this show, told the Socialist Program podcast that despite the name of the act, it will not even lower inflation. This destroyed bill, this little shadow of what might have been a a bit of a shift, is all that's left and we are asked to celebrate, there's something literally obscene in the whole spectacle. Now, whether this diminished investment in human needs is considered obscene or an opportunity is a major conundrum for activists, especially those in the climate and environmental justice communities. On some level, this is an age-old conflict over reform versus revolution to meet the needs of working people. But even those still enthusiastic about fighting for, working for reforms are sober to see the original goals of Build Back Better reduced by at least 80 percent and to see the final piece of legislation stocked with giveaways to fossil fuel corporations to further add insult to injury, a reported side deal given to Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia in exchange for his support of the act is a guarantee that the controversial Mountain Valley Pipeline, which will carry fracked gas through West Virginia, across the Appalachian Trail, and into North Carolina, will be built. So with these types of compromises and corrupt deals in the current U.S. order, where more than 60% of the discretionary budget goes to the military-industrial complex, the relative crumbs in this pending law are either cheered or scorned. For example, this legislation has created rifts in the environmental justice and climate justice movements, the same thing inside the movement for black farmers. But compare the sweat and tears shed to pass this $370 billion 
that will, in theory, maintain a habitable climate to the tens of billions easily passed and just signed into law for corporations to develop semiconductor microchips, which are used in phones and cars and other electronic devices, a bill that progressive lawmakers tag as corporate welfare. The other big story is the August 8th FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, the Florida home of former President Trump, and the resulting so-called freakout on the right with an uptick of violent rhetoric on social media and with Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia calling for defunding the FBI. On Thursday, police shot and killed a man they identified as Ricky Schiffer, 42, after he attempted to enter the Cincinnati field office of the FBI with a weapon and set off the alarm in the visitor screening facility. He then fled to a nearby rural area and farmland where Ohio State Police said he was shot and killed after he allegedly raised a gun. Similar to so much of the right dismissing revelations by the January 6th committee of Trump's role in the attack on the U.S. Capitol, many right-wing news organizations and puns pundits seem to dismiss the fact that Trump illegally transported boxes of official White House files, some of which were confidential, to Florida instead of sending them to the National Archives where they belong. Perhaps to quell the growing clamor, Attorney General Merrick Garland held a press conference on Thursday where he announced that he had approved the FBI search after he said less intrusive attempts to retrieve the documents were unsuccessful. The New York Times reports that Trump received a subpoena this spring in search of classified documents that they believed were still missing from the boxes he did return to the archives earlier this year. The department does not take such a decision lightly. Where possible, it is standard practice to seek less intrusive means as an alternative to a search and to narrowly scope any search that is undertaken. Garland also announced that the DOJ has filed a motion in the Southern District of Florida to unseal the search warrant along with a list of items seized in the search, but gave Trump and his legal team the opportunity to object to the public release of the warrant. Trump posted late Thursday night on his social media account that he would not oppose the release. Meanwhile, in related news, the Independent Project on Government Oversight reported this week that the Inspector General of the Department of Homeland Security, Joseph Kufari, failed to inform Congress about the Secret Service deleting their text messages from the January 5th and January 6th, 2021, the day of the attack on the U.S. Capitol. The project, which investigates government wrongdoing, is calling for Kufari's ouster. And election officials from Vermont and Michigan testified before Congress Thursday about death threats they received from Trump supporters after he lost the 2020 election. Meanwhile, in international news, Code Pink Women for Peace is circulating a petition calling for an end to all military aid and weapons sales to the Israeli occupation forces. Citing the deaths of at least 16 children in recent bombings in Gaza, Code Pink distributed an email that said in part, quote, Around election time in Israel, attacks on Gaza happen like clockwork. Palestinian lives are used as a political tool. The occupation argues that they are defending themselves, 
The very nature of settler colonialism is offensive. There can be nothing defensive about attempting to maintain apartheid, occupation, and the continued ethnic cleansing of Palestine, end quote. Code Pink added that the U.S. has committed nearly $40 billion over the next decade to fund the Israeli occupation, with some of our tax dollars paying for Israel's purchase of F-35 fighter jets capable of carrying nuclear weapons. And Code Pink, along with the People's Forum and Puentes de Amor, meaning Bridges of Love, have raised more than $16,000 to aid Cubans after a major oil storage tank in Matanzas, Cuba, was hit by lightning, causing an enormous fire that has left at least one dead, many missing, dozens injured with severe burns, and hundreds evacuated from their homes. While Mexico, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and other American neighbors are coming to the aid of Cuba, the U.S. has sent no personnel even though members of Congress sent a letter to the White House urging Biden to help, suggesting that Cuba could also be aided by lifting of the 243 crippling economic sanctions placed on Cuba by the Trump administration that Biden has not lifted and has instead enhanced. In Ukraine, shelling and a missile strike at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, the largest nuclear plant in Europe, prompted the director general of the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Mariano Grossi, to address the United Nations Security Council on Thursday. Grossi called for immediate cessation of all military activity at the plant and said, as of now, there is no immediate danger, but that could change. We need to work pragmatically with authorities of both countries in efforts to obtain access for our experts to Zaporizhia. For the past week, Ukraine and Russia have accused each other of firing at the plant, which is under Russian control. The Syrian oil ministry released a statement on August 9th, accusing U.S. forces occupying Syria of stealing most of the country's oil. The statement went on to say that Quote, U.S. occupation forces and their mercenaries steal up to 66,000 barrels every single day from the fields occupied in the eastern region, end quote. The ministry said this amounts to around 83 percent of Syria's daily oil production. On August 10th, footage filmed by a Russian attacked helicopter was released on social media, purportedly showing a convoy of trucks operated by the U.S. military smuggling stolen oil destined for Iraq out of Raqqa, believed to be designated for U.S. military bases in Iraq. In D.C., busloads of asylum seekers sent to D.C. by Texas Governor Greg Abbott are straining the already overcrowded shelter system, and some are being housed at motels. Governor Abbott is sending busloads of asylum seekers to so-called liberal cities, and many are arriving in D.C. and New York hungry, dehydrated, and in need of emergency medical care. And finally, in culture and media, the Roger Waters This Is Not a Drill concert tour comes to D.C. Tuesday, August 16th at 8 p.m. at Capital One Arena. On the tour, Waters is encouraging social justice organizations to set up tables inside his venues. D.C. Action for Assange is one of the groups that will be tabling August 16th. 
and may hold signs and banners outside the arena to publicize the plight of the founder of WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, who is imprisoned in London and threatened with extradition to the United States for revealing U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq. Waters also advocates for the Palestinian people and for addressing the climate crisis. After D.C., he is scheduled to appear in Raleigh, North Carolina, Atlanta, Orlando, Miami, Nashville, and New York City. And those are headlines and happenings. Up next, does the Inflation Reduction Act help or once again sell out Black farmers? Stay with us. on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i missed her Averm. now while so many critical human needs are stripped from the shrunken version of biden's build back better legislation now known as the inflation reduction act but thanks to the hard work of advocates for black farmers and to give credit to senators warnock and booker and representative alma adams of north carolina more than five billion dollars is allocated in the act for farmers who are economically distressed or in economically distressed areas or for farmers who have faced past discrimination. Black farmers have suffered more than a century of intentional discrimination and dispossession of land and family wealth by federal government policies through the U.S. Department of Agriculture and through apartheid Jim Crow policies, which caused black farmers and we should add communities, black communities to lose 90 percent of their land since 1910. Joining me to discuss the latest is John Boyd, founder and president of the National Black Farmers Association. It's been several years since I spoke to you on Pacifica, John, but I think the last time was actually on What's at Stake with Verna Avery Brown. So welcome to On the Ground, John. Well, thank you very much for for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, Well, no, thank you for making the time. Now, John, according to the USDA's own figures, 97% of the billions in Trump's coronavirus food assistance program went to white farmers. But when Biden initially put $4 billion into his COVID relief bill, the American Rescue Plan of 2021 for Black and other socially disadvantaged farmers, and only a quarter of these farmers were Black, the proposal was met with racist dog whistles like that from Senator Lindsey Graham 
And a lawsuit was filed by white farmers protesting the funding to black farmers to repair this historic systemic discrimination that we know occurred. And these lawsuits tied up the distribution of those funds. This is Graham speaking on Fox News last year. Let me give you an example of something that really bothers me. In this bill, if you're a farmer, your loan will be forgiven up to 120% of your loan, not 100%, but 120% of your loan if you're socially disadvantaged, if you're African-American, some other minority. But if you're white person, if you're a white woman, no forgiveness as reparations. What does that got to do with COVID? So that was Senator Graham speaking on Fox News. But now it appears that one little mention plus in the inf- Inflation Reduction Act is the opportunity for direct payments to black farmers who have faced discrimination. And the act could compensate so many harmed black farmers who never received a dime in the, those historic Pickford settlements to black farmers for racist discrimination and sometimes the outright theft of their land. So what kind of impact do you think this act can have? Well, well, first of all, thank, again, thank you for having me. But they actually repealed the debt relief, which I'm, I'm totally opposed to. For That was for $4 billion. And it would have went to directly to farmers who were already farming. They had, they had loans, and a lot of the farmers were really looking forward to getting this debt relief. Uh, so we were hearing from these farmers every day. And white farmers filed, as, as you've as you done in your summary, uh, 12 different complaints. Out of those 12 complaints, two temporary injunctions, one in the state of Florida, another in the state of uh, Texas, that <clears throat> barred the payments to the black farmers. So there was two bills uh, under the under that measure, 1006 and 1005. 1005 was barred by the courts. 1006 uh, didn't have any restrictions uh, that had the, already had the language in there to pay uh, discrimination cases to uh, black farmers. And Secretary Vilsack didn't pay one between uh, March that it passed up until now. He hasn't paid one discrimination case. The proposed language that's in there now is very vague. It opened it up to everybody. And uh, I think it's going to be a difficult time for black farmers to have their cases hurt. But all the, with the way that the language is loosely written, so it took away the debt relief measure. And it says something, uh, uh, in, in the debt relief measure, we had 120%, uh, which would be 100% to pay the loan off, to, to get the farmer to, to jumpstart, to start restart his farming operation, and 20% for, for taxes. Uh, the, right. this, this measure says it's up to the secretary which could be uh, just pay a portion of the debt down or or do something with the delinquent amount. Uh, the language is so vague, and, and like I said, it's so widespread that it's going to make it hard for a lot of black farmers to to actually get the justice that we were supposed to get. So uh, the language came in here at the 99th hour. A lot of people didn't, didn't see it. And uh, so I'm very, very concerned about uh, turning over everything to USDA, the same people that uh, discriminated against black farmers in the first place would be the same uh, agency that's going to set up this process. And we should have faith in them and believe that uh, uh, this secretary and USDA is going to do the right thing. When, like I said, he had a billion dollars there and he didn't pay one discrimination claim and there's nothing preventing him from doing so. 
Right. Now, I did have an opportunity to look at portions of the act and speak to, you know, other advocates for black farmers. And in my understanding is that this five more than five billion is kind of divided into two parts. One is for uh, farmers in economically distressed areas. And maybe that's the part that seems more vague. And then the other part, 2.2 billion, is specifically for farmers who have faced past discrimination. And then that 2.2 billion is more than the the money that Vilsack didn't allocate uh, when he could have. And he did do other things, which we'll we'll talk about soon. But it also takes away his control over that funding. It uh, allows it, it does allow him to appoint uh, the arbiters who will. That's who correct. Make sure that it is distributed, but he won't directly have that control. And I think that the you know farmers, you know, throughout this whole process, this three years that you've been fighting from the American Rescue Plan through Build Back Better, which was not put into place, to the current act, black farmers are the ones still left out in the cold, while other people have been getting money. Organizations been getting money. Uh, white farmers have been getting money, starting with additional funds from Trump, billions of dollars from him. Then a lot of people don't understand this little side mechanism. I think it's called the Commodity Credit Court. And while Vilsack, you know, did not distribute the money that could have greatly aided or, or even wiped out the debt of black farmers, he did, you know, funnel like $6 billion to white farmers through this court. So I guess uh, what I want to get to is your press release calling out how black farmers have continued to be denied this relief during this time and yeah. continue to be served foreclosure notices. That's and what? then you note, quote, in a recession with the highest record of input costs in 40 years, while sending hundreds of millions in aid to Ukraine farmers, end quote. (laughs) So um, what is the reality on the ground for black farmers during these during these, you know, economically challenging times and dealing with that fallout from these frivolous lawsuits that have upheld the money while, you know, Vilsack has continued to distribute funds to, you know, well off, you know, you know, really corporate farmers who don't really even need the money. Well, here's the problem here. First, First of all, the Secretary of Vilsack was the wrong man to send at this particular time in history. And me and the president had that heart to heart conversation about that. And he said he wanted to send somebody back to USDA who had experience. And I told him I was totally opposed to sending Secretary Vilsack back. He didn't help me on the Hill uh, for the Claims Remedy Act of 2010. The secretary is a very skilled politician, very savvy. And uh, if you listen to his speech, he He'll say one sentence in there about black farmers. That's what he does. So uh, while the grass is growing, that the cows are starving. The USDA is going to tell you that they're not foreclosing on uh, black farmers. I can tell you that they are. Uh, they, they're closing with uh, foreclosing on direct loans and guaranteed loans of the uh, farmers who are supposed to get debt relief. So every time I hear that uh, the secretary is going to be implementing something, USDA, it kind of makes my skin crawl. And, and some of the other things that I've told the senior level staffers on the Hill, you know, stop passing legislation that gives the secretary discretion without time ramifications. And you mentioned the Trump administration when they sent payments out. One thing about the Trump administration, the white farmers got that money within days of it passing. And here we are on two specific measures 
uh, that's probably going to wind up passing it and, and into law. And we haven't seen a damn dime. It's, something's wrong with that. And the secretary is immediately is going to say, well, we're going to have to set up a process. We're going to have to select some people to do some things. You didn't need to do that when you had 14,000 farmers who have already received the letters and accepted the debt relief. So when the government rolled back this, uh, repealed it, they broke a contract between the black farmers and, and the United States uh, our government. So I don't have a lot of confidence that the secretary, Secretary Vilsack, will implement these things. I don't have a whole lot of confidence that the way this process is set up on both sides of the aisle. Uh, you mentioned the language. There's not any language that uh, speci- specifies that socially disadvantaged farmers uh, will have their cases heard based on merit and all black farmers. There's not a word of that in, in that legislation for either bill. It's open for anybody who has a discrimination case. It could be somebody from the gay and le- lesbian community. It could be a white farmer, a male farmer. It could be a women farmer. Anybody who has made a uh, discrimination case at USDA can, can now go through this process. And based on my 40 years experience, every time we lumped in there with everybody else, uh, civil rights and justice is not an alphabetical order. Blacks are always get the last and the least. Okay. So can you give me an example? I remember you sent me a text. It had the, you know, identifying information kind of blacked out. So no personal information was revealed, but it was basically a text showing how even though foreclosures, there's supposed to be a moratorium on foreclosures, that banks were still foreclosing and that it was up to the bank's discretion whether to foreclose. Can you give us an example without, you know, it is. It is. And, and you know, it's up to USDA, too, because it's a 100 percent guaranteed loan. So USDA has to authorize the, the sale of the property. Mm. So while the government, USDA continues to say, well, it's a, it's a guarantee. One of our guaranteed partners that's foreclosing. But it's USDA who has to give the nod because it is 100 percent backed by by USDA. Uh, the right. black farmers who have uh, direct loans. They reported all of the uh, 14,000 persons there who are eligible for debt relief. They reported them to their credit reporting agencies as delinquent. Wow. Uh, Before we couldn't go out and get uh, secondary lending. And when I reached out to this administration, the Biden administration, and to ask them to provide emergency funding, they didn't do it. And I reached out to the administration to ask them to put a farm moratorium in while they Fondle through some uh, commission that we've had. We have one every five years at USDA. And they, now they want another commission and they funded that again for another $10 million. But, and I keep saying this statement, while the grass is growing, the cows are starving. So they're, they're funding outside groups and they're funding these commissions, but the farmers don't get the uh, direct support that they need to carry on with their farming operations. And we're losing, we're losing the land and uh, when these final numbers come out in, in, in the coming months, you're going to see that we lost more black farmers. So instead of getting $5 billion or whatever it is, even in this pot of money coming up, you're going to see a reduction in, in black farm uh, numbers. And this administration, uh, after the senior person left the Hill there, they had someone call me from the White House and ask me to bring them up to speed. I mean, that's not mm. something you want to say to a, a senior guy like myself who's who has uh, hundreds of farmers calling them every day, asking them 
you know, when are they going to get this relief? The president who uh, who uh, looked me in the, looked me in the eye and said that we would have this FaceTime meeting. Uh, that meeting hasn't uh, happened. And uh, so far, this administration is is batting the F here. And and uh, that last call we had with him, he said, if things don't work well with Secretary Vilsack, you know, just let me know. We'll come back to the table. I told him that in July and he committed to having a FaceTime meeting and it hasn't happened. Listen, we have 116,000 members here. And uh, as my daddy raised me as an eyeball, eyeball man, you have to do what it is that you said you're going to do. And that's my style of leadership. The president gave me his word that we were going to sit down and to have discussions on ways to get around this uh, court measure. And what's proposed here is it's not a window of success. I'm sorry. I don't know who explained it to you uh, that way, but it's not. The language is too loose and it has too many other groups in it for, for blacks to be successful. OK, well, I hope the legislation turns out to be more successful than you than you think. And. But in the meantime, what are some of the things that are needed to ensure a farm moratorium that he can write from his desk tomorrow to stop taking these black farmers farms while Mm. they're setting up all of these processes? I don't know. I don't understand why the media isn't turning up heat on that. Right. Uh, They've had two pots of money. Secretary at full discretion over a billion dollars. And instead of getting getting the money out to farmers who are discriminating against, they're taking our damn farms here. We need a farm moratorium and we need it to be issued from the president of the United States. You mean a Uh, foreclosure moratorium? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. A farm foreclosure moratorium that stops uh, banks, all secondary lenders and the United States Department of Agriculture from from foreclosing. And, you know, if if we can bail out the banks, uh, the auto industry and everybody else, uh, we ought not be losing uh, uh, farms under administration that we openly su- support from the microphone. It, it doesn't make sense to me, people. The other 99% of America's farmers didn't support this president, but, but mm. black farmers did. Mm. And I did, it, I did it from the microphone. I did it early on, and I did it when it wasn't popular. And, and we supported this president. And the treatment that we're getting from this administration, it, should, it, it shouldn't be carrying on this way. I'm going to come right out and say it. Okay. Well, definitely, Vilsack, Secretary Vilsack has a very, not just spotty record, but uh, like you said, an F grade uh, record, F grade rating. I don't don't understand why uh, the members from the Hill don't turn up the pressure on Secretary Vilsack. Uh, There's enough in the CBC to put some pressure on him. And Mm -hmm. uh, from the uh, leadership on the Democratic side, you know, you can't continue to sit there and control the House, the Senate. And, and and the Congress and make excuses about why you can't get things done for for people who supported you. I mean, that, I mean, that's where I am. And that's that's what I'm hearing from my members. The things that I'm saying to you are things that my membership is saying directly to me. This doesn't right. make sense. Right. Can't get some help. Right. Yes. Well, in addition to this moratorium on farm foreclosures, I do hope that the mechanisms that you know, I'm hearing that were put into this me- measure from uh, yeah. Senators Booker and and Warnock and Representative Adams uh, are more successful than what has been done in the past. The yeah, last time they actually paper. said black farmers, that sparked the lawsuits, right? Yeah. Social disadvantaged farmers. Social yeah. disadvantage uh, pertains to blacks. 
uh, uh, trouble farmers or whatever language they're using now is for everybody. Uh, distressed farmers. Well, it's, there's two different uh, categories. One is for economically distressed. One is people who have faced discrimination. (laughs) So you have to prove that you may put in a claim, but if you walk in, you know, a clear as day and you don't have any, any proof that you face discrimination, I don't know if you'll be successful, but um, I, I agree with you. Uh, Anything dealing with uh, secretary Vilsack has to be watched like an Eagle watched like a Hawk. We are definitely going to keep covering this issue. This won't be a one and done. And whenever, you know, you have information and news for our listeners, we're here for you to to speak. I've been speaking with John Boy, founder and president of the National Black Farmers Association. Thank you so much for joining me, John. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm going to see my sweet honey, baby. going to break this chain off the run. I'm gonna lay down somewhere shady Lord, I sure am hard in the sun Hold it right there while I hit it Well, I reckon that ought to get it Been working and working Working and slaving And working and working But a steam So terribly far to go. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, as we go to broadcast, the House of Representatives is expected to vote on the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 and send it to President Biden for signature. Now, while the act's ability to have a significant impact on inflation has been dismissed by respected economists, the White House and corporate media is still touting it as the most significant legislation in decades to address the environment and the climate catastrophe. But frontline environmental justice organizations loudly dispute these claims and are, and some are furious that their language of and demands for environmental justice and climate justice are being used to allow dirty, polluting industries to continue business as usual. The Indigenous Environmental Network, for example, writes that the act gives more money to empower fossil fuel corporations and adds that it will, quote, perpetuate social injustice and intensify the planetary crisis. Well, with me to discuss these serious issues is Michelle Roberts, co-director of the Environmental Justice Health Alliance, and environmental justice contributor to On the Ground. Welcome back to the show, Michelle. It's been a long time. Yes, thank you, Esther. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. Thank you. Well, why don't I start by uh, getting your top line uh, responses uh, to the what's in the act and some of the reaction by people in frontline communities? Sure. So thank you for all of this, Esther. Within this bill are is funding for everything from community block grant, environmental justice development enhancements, to that of deployment of emergency deployment, on the ground deployment of air monitoring for our legacy communities who have been grappling with legacy environmental justice challenges, that of 
uh, funding that would be directed towards addressing the overwhelming burden of greenhouse gas emissions on our communities that have been a legacy challenge and plague to our communities. And in addition to that, funding for addressing and remediating ports and port and those located in and near port communities, all of which and and what they say on Capitol Hill, they have heard from fence line and frontline communities. Now there are, as we all know, Esther, the environmental justice movement is actually decentralized and decentralized for a reason. And we all say they, as they say, they speak for themselves. There are community members who call themselves legacy community and EJ community members and EJ community advocates who equally date back as far back to that of the first people of color summit, such as Dr. Mildred McLean out of the Harambe House for Environmental Justice, Citizens for Environmental Justice down in Savannah, Georgia, who would say, quote, never in the history of the history of it all have we had that of the ask and solutions offered up by environmental justice communities into policies that would equally have that dollar signs attached to it. Now, understanding equally there are challenges within the bill, like the call for carbon capture sequestration and other what they call false solutions addressing hydrogen and the likes thereof. The communities do have challenges with those particular issues that have been lifted up in the bill, but they feel as though in a, with all that being said, that there must be a way in which to advance the struggle of the social condition of the death of the um, and the health and well-being of their communities, especially in the face of these various pandemics and not only pandemics, but environmental, uh, excuse me, climate unjust issues and activities that are happening in their communities as we speak now with respect to flooding, fires and the likes thereof. Yes, and I know that you're probably talking about the portion of the 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 act that provides block grants for, I think it's it might be sixty billion for what it says environmental justice priorities. Yes. Um, I'm looking at the um, again at a series of uh, fact sheets put out by the Indigenous Environmental Network, and they talk about how of the sixty sixty billion the bill offers. And I'll read from the from the statement. It offers no criteria for what qualifies as an EJ provision. As a result, there is no clear way to verify the promised amount of investment. Moreover, a provision that has no positive impact can claim to have EJ priorities. Just trying to drill drill down into this mm -hmm. whole whole issue of supporting environmental justice organizations is important for us in our conversation because these are the organizations that we've talked about. These are the issues that we've talked about. For example, I think maybe at the top of the list, people will want to know, how about Flint, Michigan, right? Uh, for example, we still say that Flint still doesn't have clean water, right? Uh, we don't know 
uh, the situation in Newark, New Jersey. And so if if this is environmental justice funding, you know, and it could possibly deal with this type of pollution, would any of these funds be available to help Flint? Yeah, so, you know, just pulling this, reeling this back a little bit, Esther, this is a very complex situation mm-hmm. as we have been, as you know, we've been speaking with many of our environmental justice elders, leaders, communities, frontline, fence line, uh, rural, all of these different folks, folks who are living right at the at the edge of the nuclear plants and what have you. But again, coming back to something that they tell us and we've heard from our elders, and I think this is really important, a thread that I took away from many of them, especially given this being Black August, right, wrong, or indifferent, there's a difference between a revolution and an opportunity. Mm. In a Mm. revolution, you will get all of the perfect elements of what it is you have been standing for because of the fact that you were indeed able to overtake and get that revolution. But if you have gotten to a point where you have right, wrong, or different, and this is what I'm hearing from elders and others, have been standing on the front line and the, and the fence line stoically demanding certain things, Are you wrong for being able to say that it is part of an opportunity that you gain now to advance yourself to the revolution that you need for the ultimate gain of the Mm -hmm. legacies within us of your of the various impacted communities within us across this nation and the world. And this is where many of these communities, when I listen to folks like Dr. Mildred McLean, who was at the First People of Color Summit, along with our brothers and sisters from IEN, and listen to folks like Brother Richard Moore, who was at the First People of Color Summit, along with them, Dr. Henry Clark, who has now gone on to become an ancestor, our sister Susanna Almanza down in Austin, Texas, our brother Juan Paraz in Houston, Texas. Many of these folks who have actually, we've heard from them on this show, are all vexed with this challenge, but equally knowing that we are at a historic moment where never, as Dr. Mildred McLean said, in the history of the history, have their challenges and their issues been advanced to that of a point of putting that of an economic dollar point on their demands. Um, So that's the conundrum, if you will, as they say, we are all in at this point but they said that they feel they must give at least uh, that of a thanksgiving for those who have come before and continue to stand. In addition to Flint, we've talked about communities in West Virginia, maybe Kentucky. We've talked about communities right in your hometown, Wilmington, Delaware. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly the uh, communities in Southern Louisiana, unfortunately known as Cancer Alley, long time 
uh, conditions of pollution and and degradation and just exploitation by fossil fuel and chemical industries uh, there. Uh, give us some concrete examples of how the block grants will help any sure. in any of these examples of communities we've talked about or, or others you know about. Sure. And it's not just the block grants, Esther. It's a combination of things. You have everything from the block grants to funding for transportation, um, funding for chemical pollute uh, for pollution remediation and but transportation, for example, what what does that mean? Transportation where we're looking at those uh, like communities that have actually been deprived of the transit needs that they've been asking for, be it albeit rural or actual or urban communities where and um with respect to incorporating that of transit lines if need be or updating their transportation um lines if necessary right so do but you mean so that people wouldn't have to rely on private automobiles they would have yes. other type of uh, yes. energy efficient transportation that's correct that is yeah. correct Mm-hmm. And where indeed possible and necessary, if there is a need for a deployment of that of a study, for example, in the commun- in those particular areas, and those studies be uh, perhaps uh, those studies are governed and advanced by that of the community leaders and local historically black colleges and universities uh, 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 are our native indigenous universities and others, or whomever, but those those uh, a- academic institutions that have that of a respect and a relationship with those communities. This is what has been pushed for and advanced in these particular policies, if you will. With respect to Flint, there's a, uh, and communities such as Flint, and in that of uh, Blades and the Sussex County, Delaware, and other spaces, there's uh, there has been an advancement towards that of a water resources, and not only looking at that of water and infrastructure, but the health portion of that thereof to be associated and connected along with that. So we were trying to be. There were many, if you will who are and and are considered and consider themselves environmental justice communities, advocates and others who did indeed put a great deal of work. Indeed, understanding in this work, there is a deep conundrum, Esther, we continue to hear from that of our policymakers that we spoke with to that of frontline and frontline communities advocates, and even national organizations who sought to try to work really in concert and alignment with environmental justice advocates and communities to try to get this thing right. The other question I had to kind of follow up is is something that we've kind of discussed before, because what I hear in your responses and what I'm reading some of the different literature put out is that there's always been this tension in our conversations about the subject between some of the demands around climate justice and the larger issues, what I think are some of the larger issues around the climate catastrophe 
the warming of the planet and the degradation of communities through other types of pollution because of this pollution. And so one of the things that I'm seeing in the documents for the Indigenous Environmental Network, for example, is that they say, okay, they may be giving out grants and there's other types of funding to aid people who have been impacted by this pollution for so long, but it's also increasing the leasing of public land for fossil fuel extraction and production and so this particularly impacts communities, uh, especially Alaska Native, communities in the Gulf South, coastal communities, and communities near federal-owned land. We actually have an issue right now in West Virginia, and this is the part of West Virginia that's right near D.C., actually, where people are being impacted by pollutants from a, a military base. And these are the PFOAs. You know, from mm -hmm. this military base, because they're using this chemicals to put out fires on the base. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm hearing is that there are many people saying that the, the amount given for these different programs are, on the other hand, being outweighed by the increased ability given to fossil fuel companies to like you said, lease on public land. They have one portion that says this act prohibits any offshore wind lease sales unless the Department of Interior has held at least one offshore oil and gas lease sale within a year before the wind lease sale. The oil and gas lease sale must be at least 60 million acres. <laughs> That's it's crazy. So if I, you know, let me just read that again. They say, for the next 10 years, this act prohibits any offshore wind lease sale unless the Department of Interior has held at least one offshore oil and lease sale within a year before the wind lease sale. But, you know, so what does, you know, so provisions like that are making some people believe it. it's, it's, it's almost an insult. We, we're talking about the ancestors. We want to respect the time, the effort, the lives they've given in the struggle for clean environment, uh, clean communities, for the human right to have clean water and air and an environment. And just something like that seems like such a slap in the face to me of their effort. And it, it's it's bringing into, to get back to my original point, it's, it's, it's bringing into sharp relief this contrast between the money given to aid these long impacted communities. And on the other hand, you know, requiring that there, there be additional leasing of public lands for drilling, you know, that could be right offshore from these communities. You're right, Esther. And this is what was grappling to many of these fence line communities, as they say, continue to call this historic you know, what's, if you want to dig even deeper than that, then we have to even look at who the foundations are that are funding the fight, if you will. So none of it is pure. Many are even saying, even in the foundation worlds, that at some point the oil and gas industry has touched and gone through the funding that's gone to the fence line communities who do who want to go against the oil and gas industry and more important if we can say a plug for the on the ground show and that of our 
continued reporting is so important to think about how the impacts of racism and capitalism are on Black and brown communities and how do we really gain and get the pure human rights and justice we so deserve and need. Yeah, and and I think that, that that's the other thought I had when you were explaining, breaking down some of those connections and some of the benefits that are in what is overall a very troubled a piece of legislation. And so you know where I go on the show. I mean, when I see that there may be some public dollars to redress past wrongs, you know, the total violation of people's uh, right to live in a clean environment. It's the failure of the federal government to require these corporations to pay Mm -hmm. for this cleanup, to pay for what is, in fact, the climate reparations for or environmental reparations for and environmental justice for these communities. So if there are people living next to a toxic dump. There's all this uranium dumping or abandoned uranium mines out West, you know, that our indigenous brothers and sisters are dealing with. You have even the fact that the reason the, the river, the, the Flint river was so polluted. It has a lot to do with how industry was allowed to just write put toxins into the water, how industry in this country and around the so-called developed world was allowed to just use our waterways as a toilet, uh, as a dumping ground for serious toxins that people are still being impacted by today. These forever chemicals like these PFOAs uh, that we talked about earlier. So it's the failure of the government to hold these companies accountable to the even to the laws you already have on the books. I mean, decades, you know, went by or century went by between the start of the Industrial Revolution and or more than a century between the start of the Industrial Revolution and the Clean Water Act or the Clean Air Act. And the fact that this country here, we are on the precipice of climate catastrophe, still can't take the necessary bold moves to make corporations pay. But anyway, so I want to end up because I know we're running out of time. Uh, I've been speaking with uh, Michelle Roberts, our uh, environmental justice contributor for On the Ground. And she also serves as the co-national director of the Environmental Justice Health Alliance. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Esther. And that's it for today's show. But we will post part two of our conversation with Michelle Roberts on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash on the ground show special thanks to michelle and to john boyd president of the national black farmers association this is on the ground voices of resistance from the nation's capital on two dozen stations on the pacifica radio network on all your podcast platforms at on the ground with esther Averam and on our website on the ground in addition to communicating with us on our website you can follow us on twitter facebook and patreon.com at on the ground show all of which have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground and i also link to every show on my instagram page 
The music we played this hour included the work song by Nina Simone and Jerusalema by Master KG. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end-of-the-year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.